The real meaning behind your favorite songs. Not just big hits, but iconic culture-changing pieces of art. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. said at the, at the top of the show, that's a pop song. That, <laughs> Hollow Notes, Private Eyes, you're not going to get sophisticated, intricate chord progressions in pop music anymore. God bless Michael McDonald and the Doobie Brothers, Sirius XM 106, it's volume, feedback, Nick Carter and uh, Jim Sheeran for Lori on our returning champion, Mark Myers of the Wall Street Journal, uh, the music and arts contributor here. His book, Anatomy of a Song, the oral history of 45 iconic hits that changed rock, R&B and pop. And I was saying earlier, Mark, before you came in, that uh, Doobie Brothers, my first rock concert, Ah, first time yeah. I smelled weed, first time I'd seen boobies, pretty much, and that song in particular was sort of one of my introductions as a boy to what arrangements mean, because I knew that Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins had written that song, and of course that was the version I heard first, and then I was like, oh yeah, I like Kenny Loggins, and I went out and I got his version, I was like, what song is this? <laughs> by comparison, by comparison, and you know something? That song's an earworm. It's not just a pop song. <clears throat> it gets in your head, and it's like you just can't you just can't let it go. But you know, when that thing just before it came out, the uh, executives at Warner Brothers were writing the Doobies obit. I mean, no, the, ev- everybody was convinced the song and the album it was on, minute by minute, was going to be a complete disaster. And, and the minute Doobies by minute, it was a monster. <clears throat> right. Right, which, you know, further goes to prove you just can't predict, you can't predict a hit, but you know. So wait, so wait, okay, so he, so Michael McDonald has joined the band, Um, they've had hits with Take It To The Streets, It Keeps You Running, I mean, Little Darling, like that Living On The Fault Line album was, was pretty big. And Warner Brothers thought they were finished. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, Michael told me. I mean, this was really funny. Michael told me when I interviewed him that before the album came out, he was concerned and he played the album for a friend. And they sitting that guy's mercedes benz at the sherman oaks fashion mall in la and he plays him the whole album and the friend the good friend says uh none of it makes sense oh it's all over the place i just can't i can't i can't figure it out minute by minute comes the album comes out in december 78 a few weeks later in january 79 what a fool believes comes out as a single boom by april the single reaches number one on the Billboard's chart, and then it then it wins three Grammys in 1980, Song and Record of the Year, and Best Arrangement. I mean, the song just explodes in in '79. It was just all over the place. It was the tail end of the disco period, right? And this thing sort of capped it. Oh, we played there was a there's a disco remix of it. We played that earlier, and to some degree, I guess. If you're somebody who was in early on the Doobie Brothers, I was saying earlier, they used to be a biker band. This is like before Michael McDonald Big joined difference. the band, right? Big difference. So I get, you know, if you were from that ilk, that that era, you'd go like, oh, what is this? But I mean, let's do Doobie's history. 
because I don't think you can really do this song without giving a little perspective, right? So the Doobie Brothers are basically a pot-smoking band from San Jose, California that forms <laughs> in 1970, right? Big, you know, roach clips they know, bongs they know, music they know. Um, the band's first era, what's called the first Doobie Brothers era, runs from 1970, their formation year, to 1975, which is when Michael joins them. Um, the era's dominated by singer-songwriter Tom Johnston, right? So it's sort of, I guess, it's it's the Eagles meet the band, really, right? It's got the pop sensibility. They can really play. But at the same time, there's this there's this roots thing going on. But let's let's listen to the early, let's listen to the let's listen to a few tracks from this this first doobies era. Um, we have uh, listen to the music? All right. Now, I remember this song, and I also remember it was a massive bar song. Yep. I mean, you went. I mean, you know, you you went into a bar, and this thing was on all the time. <laughs> yep. All the time. Girls loved it. Guys loved it. People danced to it. People drank to it. Bars bartenders loved it. Um, do we have the long train running? All right. By the way, that listen to the music went to number one. Uh, excuse me, in '72. Sorry, that was not '79. In '72, um, listen to the mu- listen to the music and uh, "Long Chain Running" is 1973, which goes to number eight on the pop chart. Again, constantly with this opener, right? It's a jukebox opener, right? I mean, as soon as somebody pl- presses B7, <laughs> you know, it's like ah, the doobies, yeah, yeah. the doobies. All right, and get, let's do Blackwater, which is um, Patrick Simmons' song, actually. Number one from the Doobie Brothers. Number This went to number one in 74. This thing was a runaway hit. Yeah, dude, the, this song was inescapable. Yeah. But it had this solely Joni feel, Laurel Canyon. I mean, it had mm-hmm. a moodiness. Written in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. And this was number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Yep. So pay attention, kids. This is not Post Malone or Ray Shermerd. This is the Doobie Brothers' number one song in the entire country. Because it's funny because they were like this quote-unquote album-oriented rock band, basically like meaning a rock radio band, and they just happened to have these singles that would like seep over into Top 40 until Michael McDonald joins that Yeah, team. yeah. I mean, basically... Parts of the country that love this stuff are those who couldn't afford a stereo receiver with an FM band yet. You know what I mean? In other words, it was sort of like sliders for AM radio that was really <laughs> FM stuff. It could have been eight times longer. The thing could have had a solo or two. No Pink it. Floyd for you. You settled <laughs> for the Doobie Brothers because you're stuck on AM. <laughs> yeah, let's do uh, Sweet Maxime. This is a Holland Dozier Holland uh, song. It's a Motown song, but listen how early Doobies do this song. It's uh, really interesting. That's a driving song, right? You get in the car and you go. Summertime. And can I send a quick shout out to the Doobies because they were one of the um, one of the first bands that I noticed with this trend. They're one of the first white rock bands with the black bass player, Tyron Porter. Right, <laughs> right, Tyron. Um, and again, it's it's the Eagles meet the band. I mean, there's a, there's a conscience, but there's also commercial, commercial and conscience. Um, now in '74, 
right? This is like going through the years here, the first era. Um, guitarist Jeff Skunk Baxter, uh, who's a co-lead guitarist for Steely Dan, leaves that group, leaves Steely Dan. And the reason for that is that Donald Fagan and Walter Becker are quitting the road and they're going into studio to do it all. I mean, they're not, they're not doing the road anymore. You know, they're going to produce all their albums in the studio and Skunk just needs a place to go to get on the road and make money. Um, so he joins the Doobies. And in 75, the grind of the road takes its toll on Tom Johnston, who is the epicenter of the Doobies during this period. He's the songwriter. He's the lead singer. I mean, he's, he's the guy that's stirring the drink. But fortunately for the Doobies, Skunk, who's now playing with, with them, um, knows Michael McDonald, who was with Steely Dan as well at the same time, and brings Michael McDonald in uh, to, um, uh, you know, to write, to, you know, travel with them on the road. He's not a member of the band yet. Um, he's just subbing for Johnston as Johnston recuperates and, you know, hopefully comes back. But in 1976, big turning point with an album due. I mean, you have to keep in mind, listeners have to keep in mind that these bands were factories. Like if you didn't get to record, you didn't get to be rock stars unless you could tour your tail off and then on the road, write music. And then when you got back to New York or LA, you started to record and then you recorded and they released the album. You got about 20 minutes off and then the <laughs> album came out and you're back on the road selling that album. So you had to be prolific. You had to really crank it out and you had to have stamina. Um, so in 76, with an album due, Michael joins the Doobies full time as lead singer and keyboardist. And in 77, uh, it, you know, this is just after Michael joins, um, the Doobies record Living on the Fault Line and in 78, taking it to the streets. Um, and as a singer-songwriter, Michael brings a new sound to the band, radically new sound. And I think if we sort of distill it, it's more soul, less roots, more urban, less rural. I mean, it's just got a city sound. Um, let's listen to Michael's sound with the Doobies because it's important to contrast these two feelings. Um, times have changed as well. Keep in mind, the Doobies in the early 70s are coming off of Woodstock. They're coming off of the uh, festivals in the 60s. It's a different feel. By the late 70s, you've got the slickness of recording studios and disco and production. So music needed a little bit of a different feel. Um, let's listen to Michael and Carly Simon. This is from Living on the Fault Line. You belong to me. This is pure Michael McDonald. I mean, it's Carly Simon too, but listen how it creeps up and then Michael's voice comes in. Why'd you tell me this? Why you look for my Incredible, right? And then she records this and has a huge hit with herself. Yeah, exactly. So Mark, what was the public perception like when... Michael steps in and Tom Johnson's not on the road with them. You know, the animosity about that is more reflective. Nobody cared. In fact, every, you know, these songs these, these songs went to the top of the charts. But if that happened today, I feel like it would be a huge story like what he's he's singing now for the Doobie Brothers. Oh, but I got to tell you, I, I was saying He was on the you... road though, you know. He was he joined them and he, he didn't sort of come in from Mars. He was with them touring. So the audiences were were ready audiences that had gone to see them in concert had a already been aware that Michael McDonald was playing a big role. So when these albums come out, it's just an extension of what they were doing on the road, which I think was really smart to have him gradually blend into that band as opposed to, you know, like some sort of baseball situation where there's a trade. Right. You know? But so. I was saying before you came in, you know, 
when I was at VH1 a couple of years ago, they played live in my studio and Tom was there and Michael was there and the tension between all of them, especially those two, is palpable now. Yeah, it's you like know, I'm asking, uh, I'm second ask, wives, right? Yeah, and I'm asking about like, well, blah, 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 and John's like, well, I wasn't there for that. I'm like, well, then let somebody who was there answer the question. <laughs> it was just weird, man. Oh, man. Uh, a couple more. Um, you're made that way. This <sighs> is um, Michael McDonald's song again, Living on the Fault Line in 77. This is the sound of the late 70s, mm -hmm. right? This is the bar sound yep. of the late 70s. Not the disco sound, but the bar. This is this was on all the time. And it really, the, the band really becomes more about Fender Rhodes than Fender Strat. Oh, very good. I like that. <laughs> very good. Uh, let's do There's a Light. This is also Living on the Fault Line, 77. Michael McDonald's song and him singing. interesting thing is on a lot of these songs they start out sounding like it's easy listening and then they get increasingly sophisticated like steely dan mm. there's a lot of steely dan in what we're listening to now right yeah odd chord change you know mm -hmm. phrasings interesting stuff let's do taking it to the streets uh michael mcdonald this is 1978 this is a good one oh, so good dude and again that same arrangement where it just creeps up on you Starts out, you don't know what's going on, you don't know where it's going, and then um, shifts gears and boom. You don't know me, but I'm your Michael's writing, he's a genius at tension. There's a big sense of suspense, and then there's this incredible resolution. What a voice, too. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. It's a great guy to talk to, just a wonderful guy. I mean, literally, literally sounds like this when he talks, you know, he's, I mean, when he's having a conversation. So spending some time with him, do you think he would be the judge in a Michael McDonald karaoke contest here on Feedback? <laughs> no, he's pretty low key. See, he's very I told you, Nick. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Michael doesn't wait, think you so. Don't, you don't think so? No, no, no. I think he's very laid back. I think he's... Uh, um, no, but could he, could he, I want him to be a judge. Oh, please. As, uh, yeah, I know okay. what you want. Okay, all right, enough, want. enough, enough with your little reindeer games. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very low-key guy. You know, he's very, you know, below the radar. Like I say, he put his heart and soul into these songs. He doesn't, you know. Yeah. So you're he, saying he, he wouldn't wanna, be a judge. He doesn't want to hear you murder. He's not a 21st century guy. He doesn't you know? want to hear you Should murder. We, Adam Levine might be available. Ah. I don't want to do Maroon. <laughs> so we sh you're saying we shouldn't ask him. Go ahead and ask. I'm just, you know, you, you, you're not asking me, should I ask him? You're asking me, do you think he'll do it? I'm just saying, I, I don't think he would, but you never know. You never know. Ask him. It could be, a, you know, could be, he could get it and he could want to do it. Okay, you're wasting my time. Let's get back to All the right. song. Continue. So let's, do, let's, <laughs> let's do the song history. Now that we've got the doobies history that you've got this early Tom Johnston period where it's roots and then you've got Michael McDonald where it's more soul, less rural. So how did... What a fool believes come to be, right? How does that song pop out? Like, how did the, any of these songs pop out? But in particular, that song. Um, Michael grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, in the late 1950s and 60s. Spent a lot of time listening to the radio. Had a, had two radios under. I think he had radios under his pillow, and it was just you know, all the time listening to the radio. Um, and for this song, for this song, he he wanted to write before he even thought of the song. He wanted to write a song with a specific sound. 
That's how this song started. He wanted a song with a specific sound. Now, I'm going to play you three songs that all have this sound. And let's see, let's see if we can, let's see if we can figure that out. Um, do we have Sherry? Boom, go ahead. Wow. And then this is an influence on What a Fool Believes. And this is 1962. All right, let's do, uh, let's do the DC-5 bits and pieces. Another influence of What a Fool Believes. And lastly, uh, let's do the Supremes. Wow. Another influence. All right, so what's the common denominator? What's the common denominator? All of these groups are in the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) No. Any guesses? It's the stomping. Yeah, it's got that driving, stomping. Every single one of these, they're stomping the floor. Each group is stomping the floor in their in their uh, Cuban heels and their in their in their little little uh, British British Liverpool boots. They're, except for the Supremes, but they're they're stomping going on on each of these. Michael wanted a song that had four on the floor. That had one, two, three, four, bop, bop, bop. Bop, baby, baby. I mean, all of those songs that we just played were influences, he told me. And what they all had in common, um, play What a Fool Believes, the intro. Four, one, two, three, four. It's no backbeat. Straight four, straight four. Yeah, all right, listen, let's take a quick break. We're going to get a little deeper into this. What a Fool Believes, Mark Myers, it is feedback. Stick around. Listening to feedback. You're listening to feedback with Nick and Lori. Volume Sirius XM 106. (laughs) I'm telling you, that is an intricate song. Very difficult. And, you know, the keyboard lines, God, like the piano, then the synth line is like, ugh. Uh, You know, for listeners, to know how difficult this song is and how complicated it is, if you call up the lyrics, try to sing them. Try to sing them. Just the cadence of that, really. but, But just try to sing the lyrics as they're written. You know the song, try to sing them. You'll see you're messing up because... As, as I was telling Jim before, Michael writes these things so that the, the, the me- they're not neat measures. The, the lyrics spill over into the next measure. Mm. You have to hurry up on, on a couple of, uh, on a long line of lyrics and then drag out two words. Very, very tricky stuff to sing. You know, when we, before we left, we were talking about um, the kind of song, the sound that Michael was looking for and that, that four beats, you know, to the measure, bump. Bump, bump, bump. And we played uh, Sherry and Bits and Pieces and Where Do I Love Go. Um, all of those have that four beats on the f- four, four on the floor um, feel, that stomping feel. That's what Michael wanted to do. He wanted to write a pop song, but he wanted to do it in a sophisticated way. So one day, Michael spends a lot of time on the piano at home, and he's just constantly writing, and he's messing around, as songwriters do, on the piano with different chords. And he winds up with chords for the first 
a, for the first verse to a song. Doesn't have a title yet, but he's got he's got something. He likes it. And on a plane from L.A. Uh, from New York to L.A., he writes the lyrics on a napkin because he's listening in his head to what he had written a couple of days earlier. And he writes, he came from somewhere back in her long ago. The sentimental fool don't see, trying hard to recreate what had yet to be created once in her life. Now, wow. I've read those as they should be sung, as you could hear. But you literally, as I'm reading this, you have to sort of realize where the breaks are. And that's it. That's all he's got. He's got this verse that he put together on his piano at home in L.A. And he's got this napkin with lyrics on it. And he can't get the song to move forward. Michael likes to let songs marinate. He likes to put it away, bring it back, put it away, bring it back. A lot of his songs were written over time. Um, but soon, you know, tick tock, tick, it's time to record an album. Um, so Michael brings in all these disparate bits and pieces songs that he's sort of these these fragments. He brings them in. Um, and Teddy Templeman, the, the their, their producer, um, he plays them all out for Teddy to say, here's what I've got. We need more songs. Michael, what have you got? He goes, well, here's what I've got. And he plays a whole bunch of fragments. And when he's playing this fragment that he wrote the lyrics to on a napkin and he started the first verse in LA, Teddy says, stop, hold it. He says, what's that? And Michael says, oh, it's this thing I came up with. You know, all I've got is this verse, uh, you know. Teddy says, you got to finish that one. That's a hit. You got to finish it. And Michael says, yeah, you know, it's like, I really need time on these things. I'd like, you know, I, I can't just like jam it out. I've got to put it away and bring it back. And, you know, it's a process here. And Taryn Porter in the studio says, hey, you know, I don't know what you think about this, Michael, but I ran into Kenny Loggins and he'd love to write with you. I mean, he loves your music. And Michael says to himself, this is he's him telling me, obviously I'm not in his head, but he says to me, Oh, I like Kenny. Kenny's got good, good. He's got good, good taste. He's got good instincts. He's got he's a great songwriter. Um, why not? You know, let's get this. Let's get let's get some of these songs done. Wait, this is the first thing they write to get. Yeah. So so Michael <laughs> calls him up. Michael calls him up, and Kenny says, "Yeah, you know, I'd love to write with you." And Michael says, "I really love your music." And so Kenny drives down from Encino to L.A. Uh, to Michael's house. Now this is the really amazing part of this story. It's really insane how incredible it is. Um, my Kenny, before Kenny pulls up, Michael is working on the various bits and pieces songs that he wants to run by Kenny to see what, what he wants to do. They're going to do this weird song that he wrote the lyrics to on the napkin, but he's got other songs that he wants to write with Kenny. He's going to run a bunch of them by him. Kenny pulls up, takes his guitar out of the car, and as he gets to Michael's house, walks up the drive and gets to his near his door, Michael just happens to be playing what will become what a fool he plays that first verse that opening verse and kenny knocks on the door michael comes to the door and before like michael says hey and that's all that's the the only word he gets out of his mouth kenny says that song you were just playing on the piano he says i've got a bridge for it <laughs> he literally heard that opening verse and had the bridge to the song outside the door. <laughs> and when he knocks on the door, he says to Michael, I've got the, whatever you were just playing, I have no idea, but I've got a bridge for it. So they go in, you know, probably Kenny still got his jacket on. He sits down at the piano. Michael plays it for him again. And Kenny offers up the melody and, and this lyric. She 
had a place in his life. He never made her think twice, which juices Michael, and he comes back with, as he rises to her apology, anybody else would surely know he's watching her go. So these guys click right away. And that bridge, that bridge was just instant. To, Kenny had it before he knocked on the door. He had it through the screen. <laughs> Michael had his door open, had the window open, and Kenny, Kenny had the bridge. He knew Michael was working on a song. That's why he was there. And he, he had a bridge for that whole thing. So Kenny says, I interviewed Kenny as well. Kenny, by the way, is a great guy. He's such a, I mean, really smart. He was our first guest. Uh, he's so articulate. The first day of the so show. So vocal. He's so um, intellectual, but on, and a songwriter. And just, you know, he, there's something about Kenny that's just, as an artist, that you just hear it in his voice, how smart and how craft, how crafted this guy is. Really crafted. Um, so he says, to Michael, he says, what is this song about? Just out of curiosity. I mean, I, I know what these l words are. I know that the bridge lyric is, but what, what are we writing about? I mean, what's the story? And Michael says, Kenny, he, he says to Kenny, I wanted to write about a guy who meets an old girlfriend for a drink. And this guy sort of foolishly believes they can get back together, but she's done, right? She's finished. But he somehow thinks that they'll get back together because they're having a drink and he's foolishly thinking that, that you know, it'll work out and that she's going to go back out with me and that's why she's here. Um, so Michael wanted to explore that tension. And I think everybody, whether it's a woman listening or a guy, has been in that situation where they're, they're getting, they're meeting up with their former, with their ex and it's, you know, their, their, their motive is we're going to get back together the other person's motive is, I feel sorry for the other person. Let me just have a drink and then we'll call it, call it the end. So Michael wants to develop that, that concept in a song. So he, so he wants the lyrics. He says to Kenny, but I want the song's lyrics to reflect both of their perspectives. Like he's, you know, in a day, he's in a dream world and she wants to get out of there. And, you know, Kenny says, great, but not for this song. Um, Kenny says, it's too much. You got three minutes and 21 seconds to get this thing done. There's no time to get into all that. I mean, that's like a 40 minute song <laughs> with drinks, you know? So, so it's like, he says, Michael's, oh, he says to Michael, you're overthinking it. You know, the song should just be about the guy's foolish perspective. I mean, he says, I think that's where the action is. You know, the fact that she's not into it anymore. You know, once you say that, there's not much of a song left, but the fact that this guy foolishly believes things can happen you can really, we can really work with that. Michael agrees. And as Michael agrees, he's remembering a Brenda Lee song. And the Brenda Lee song that he remembers is, as usual, from 1960, which is a song about every day some guy gets up and, as usual, he's dreaming about his girl who's left him and he, they're going to get back together. And that's what as usual is. But do we have as usual by Brenda Lee? This is 1960. The sun comes up Little Miss Dynamite And brings the dawn As usual I never would have imagined all of this stuff going into that song. So th this, is Never. A, this is a rolling rock, you know, bar song late at night. You know, this is like Last Call song. It's real country. You know, you'd, you'd find this in Arkansas, Missouri, Texas. Um, but, you know, Michael has, so, Michael knows 
every single song ever recorded after 1955. I mean, it's, he probably knows them earlier than that. But he, he just, this, this song popped into his head as a theme of somebody singing about not of, of the relationship not working out from their sole perspective, not a conversation, not the other person's perspective, but one person's perspective. Um, and Kenny, you know, said to me, there's, there were two things that fascinated him about Michael musically. I said, what was it like sitting at the edge of the piano with your guitar watching Michael? I mean, I have to assume you kind of have to recalibrate Kenny to kind of fit to become more Michael. I mean, you've got to find a zone, you know, as a sliding scale, you got to find out where Michael lives so that you lives musically so that you can, in other words, when two writers write together, they don't write individual songs. You know, they don't, they're not, they're not coming up with stuff that works for them. One person is kind of getting that the other person wrote something more interesting and they're trying to fit it. They're trying to fit that. That was Lennon and McCartney. That's Hal David and Backrock. I mean, it's it's just that's how it works. So Kenny, as he's pl- as he's listening to Michael, he says he says to me, there are a couple things that were really fascinating watching Michael work out this song on the piano. His thumb moves around a lot on the keyboard, and is always an octave or two below his right hand, which is really interesting because. Basically, what you have there with Michael, you know, as Kenny and I were talking, is Michael is a contemporary stride player. You know, that thumb is working the bass line, moving back and forth on the lower register in the bass notes, and it's that's it's moving all the time. It's moving all the time, which is that's a stride instinct. It's it's stride like like Fats Waller or it's stride like like any of the great players, uh, Teddy Wilson, uh, James P. Johnson. But, um, you know, uh, Kenny said listening to Michael was like go- like watching that left thumb and listening to Michael was like going to church. He said it, it, there was something gospel about it. And I said, what else? He said that Kenny, he said that Michael tends to, this was really interesting. He said that Michael tends to shift from optimistic major chords to melancholy ones quickly and beautifully. And that really is the secret of Michael McDonald, right? It's, you think you're in a commercial zone with a major seventh chord, and then suddenly it goes melancholy. Suddenly there's this sadness, there's this bluesy feel that follows it, and it kind of erases any judgment call you had about something sounding too straightforward. He's constantly contrasting straightforward with something that's very angular. Sweet Freedom is the prime example of very that. Very good, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's 1 a.m., not now, it's 9.30, but <laughs> it's, it's 1 a.m. back at Michael's house, this is back in 78, and Kenny goes home. You know, that's enough for the day. And the next day, so let's talk on the phone the next day. So the next day, uh, Michael calls Kenny. And with with the phone under his chin, uh, as Michael's playing it on the piano, um, Michael, Kenny and Michael agree that sometimes you can't change what a fool believes. That if a fool believes something, you're not going to change that. If he believes he's getting back, you know, with his girlfriend, you can't, you can't, say to the guy before he goes to the bar, it's not going to work. She's over you. It's gone. It's done. It's finished. You can't change what a fool believes. It's just, you know, that's, he's got to, the guy's got to go there and see for himself what that's all about. Um, and so what they write is the chorus, you know, okay, that's a great concept. What a fool believes. Let, let's, let's work with that. <clears throat> they write the chorus, but what a fool believes he sees. <clears throat> it's funny. Jim and I were talking <clears throat> during the break that it's, 
part of the charm of this song is you can't figure out what Michael's singing, right? <laughs> it's like you don't quite know, but it doesn't matter because you make up your own lyrics to what he's singing, but you do know that he's singing What a Fool Believes, but everything else is kind of soul, soul murky, soul muddy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they write, this is what they do write, but what a fool believes he sees. No wise man has the power to reason away what seems to be is always better than nothing. That is an amazing lyric. I mean, keep in mind, they're writing this without the orchestration, without the arrangement, but what a fool believes, he sees. No wise man has the power to reason away. What seems to be is always better than nothing. It's just, that is just brilliant songwriting, brilliant lyric writing. Um, And what they realize they have is a song that needs the title, What a Fool Believes. I mean, they realize that after they write that together, I don't, you know, it could have taken an hour or two hours, but they know that the title now has to be What a Fool Believes. Great. Let's, the scene closes, scene opens, Michael's bringing the song to the Doobie Band up and I think they were up in Half Moon Bay. I think that's where their house was there. They all shared a house up there for rehearsals. Um, but the, as the band plays it down, as they start to rehearse and they start to work it, and then when they take it into the studio, they have the same problem, which is the, the opening verse has a beat and then it kind of drifts. It's almost like, it, it's almost like driving fast on the first verse and then you take your foot off the gas and the car cruises. The band kept slowing down. And you can't slow down on a song. You know, you've got to keep the exact same tempo through the whole song, especially this one. Um, but they, they keep slowing it down. And, and Mike, Michael's saying, I want that four on the floor sound. Um, so Teddy, who was in Harper's Bazaar, sets up his drum kit. And he plays double drums to keep everybody like on target. Um, but what they also do to ensure that everybody stays on target is they bring in these large panels of wood, of pine, and they put them down on the floor. And everybody who is standing <clears throat> is hitting four on the floor. Dun, 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 Are you dun, kidding me? Dun. Yeah. Michael told me they brought in, you know, I said to Michael, tell me one thing that nobody knows about the recording of this song. He goes, well, we brought in wood. And I'm thinking to myself, Ronnie, or you know, <laughs> who exactly? Who's Wood? And he goes, No, no, no. You know, we brought in these panels of wood and put them down, and everybody stomped it out to make sure we. St- it was almost like a metronome, right? But their feet were the metronome. Um, and when he, you know, when they, when they, when they, you know, you say, you say, okay, how come I don't hear that on the recording? They mixed it out. They mixed it out, you know, so it's, it's faint, you know, it's light, it's, it's there, but you know, they may not have been, you know, stomping it like the, the, the Dave Clark five. Yeah. It would have sounded like a frog march. For exactly. <laughs> exactly. But they're, they're doing it enough that they can hear it and you know, that keeps them on, keeps them on target. Um, so the sound's mixed out now, close scene, open scene. This is early 78, spring of 78. Kenny's the co-writer on the song, and he's the first to release a version of this song, Kenny Loggins. And he, he releases this on his second solo album, Night Watch. Um, and this is in July of 78. Now, keep in mind, it's a very different version. But too many people misjudge this version. They're too hard on it because they know the Doobie Brothers, Doobie's, Doobie Brothers version, and they, oh, this isn't the Doobie Brothers version. What is this? You know, I don't get it. But imagine the Doobie Brothers version doesn't exist, right? So this is a, this is a different approach to the same song. Uh, one last note before we play it. Uh, Michael and Kenny, when they're together, they often sing this version. 
when they're on stage performing. Wow. Uh, they often sing Kenny's version that he recorded in not, instead of the Doobies, in Doobie Brothers' version. Let, let's hear um, What a Fool Believes by Kenny Loggins. This came out in July of 78. Harrison, it kind of sounds almost like game show music. Right. Or, or I mean, like, and I love Kenny Loggins, Coming man. back, coming back after the ad. Exactly. Right, right. But what's the etiquette like? Shouldn't Michael get to release it no, first? No, no, They're both, they're, they're co-authors of this. Kenny has half rights to it. He can release it whenever he wants. Note, the interesting thing about music, as everybody knows, it's like a fingerprint. It's very, even covers don't sound like the original, right? You know, when you hear cover versions of songs, uh, band versions, you know, you can always tell, a good ear can always tell, that's not the original, it's missing something. It's, it sounds like it, but it's not quite there. Kenny had a different take on this song, and that particular version, now keep in mind, he, the, Doobies, the Doobie Brothers version doesn't exist, nev hasn't been released yet. This is Kenny's impression, interpretation of that song, and it's been Kennyized. I mean, it's just, this is Kenny's audience. But Michael's fine with that? Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's He's still getting paid. It, it, let's put it this way. If Here, I'll give you an example. You and I write the song. Mm -hmm. I go first with the song. Um, what, you're, what, what you're thinking and what, you're, what your significant other is thinking is you're hoping, and I say significant other because you're hoping to God my song sells a trillion copies because your mailbox is going to be full of royalty checks <laughs> right and your significant other is saying it doesn't matter we're going to you know we're going to buy that other house or we're going to get that car it doesn't matter you know great news so it doesn't it's almost like competition like whose version is going to sell more and make us more money they're they're co-owners in the same business in effect and it's so funny because the second you mentioned that um as i say literally like of course i heard the Doobies first, and then I went back and I listened to the Kenny Loggins version. And I always wondered if there was demos of the two of them doing the song together. Like, because Kenny, Kenny's got those tapes. Because what they must have sounded like, because the two versions are so radically different. Right. Uh, keep in mind, when they're writing a song, Michael isn't writing the arrangement, right? Right. He's just writing a melody and harmony, and they're putting together the kind of the vocal and everything else. So <clears throat> what happens is, is that, um, you know, if anything... Kenny going first is a detriment to Kenny uh, because by going first, he's tipped his hand. And if they're in competition, now Michael knows how to improve on it or, mm -hmm. or up the ante to sort of, and again, it doesn't matter because they're both share. Every dollar that comes in is 50 cents mm -hmm. to one and 50 cents to the other. Um, Kenny told me, this is, this is interesting. So that was, that was, that was, you know, Kenny's version, but do we have just a, well, let's, let's keep going because I want to play the 10 songs at the end. Um, Kenny told me, this was just amazing. I said, so, you know, the album comes out. It comes out in December, the Doobie Brothers. What did you think when you heard the song? And he said, honestly, I wished I, wished I could have recorded mine again. <laughs> and that's just, you know, one song was the runaway hit. And, you know, look, Kenny's in the music business. Sometimes he'll have the hit. Sometimes somebody else has the hit. Sometimes they write together and it, it becomes a hit. But he recognizes what makes... He, he recognizes in Michael why Michael is so special and gave me a lot on why exactly Michael is so special as a musician, as an artist, as a harmonist, and as, you know, uh, someone who puts together a package that just blows everybody away. And they went on to write so many, like, this is it. 
Huge hit for Kenny Loggins. They wrote together, I Gotta Try, which they both recorded. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with more from Mark Myers on Feedback. You're listening to Feedback. The stories behind the hits that shape the world of music. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. All right, so it's volume series XM 106, Nick Carter and Jim Shearer, and Mark Myers describing why it took the power of two beards to write what a fool <laughs> believes. Okay, so if, if you're going to write a song, people listening, you want to write a song, write it about a fool. Why do I say that? Because I'm going to give you in 10 songs, 10 clips, the history of the fool song and why each of these was a big hit. Each one of these songs is her hit. Let's start out with Frankie Lyman. The history of the Fool song. Let's do it. Number one R&B song. All right, the next one. The next one is my favorite Fool song. Favorite Fool song. Let's do the Drifters. Plas Johnson on tenor. This is Lieber and Stoller. They wrote this. Fools give their hearts much too soon. All right, let's, let's, uh, Brenda Lee in 1962, Fools Rush In. Oh, that's beach music. <laughs> Fools Rush In, where angels fit to tread. You got Sammy queued up? And so I come to you, my You got Sammy? My heart above my head. This is 62. See, you got me thinking now. A fool song, yeah, another big is... fool hit. <laughs> what kind of fool am I? <laughs> Great arrangement. Wow. I was going to say that kitchen sink arrangement, man. Aretha. Let's do Aretha's Big Fool's Head. Yes. This song's the shit, dude. I'm sorry. Write a fool song. Right? Let's write a fool song right away. Chain of Fools. Number two. Number two pop hit. Um... A little group from Liverpool named The Beatles had a f- big, big fool hit. Now, it wasn't a hit. It wasn't a hit single. It wasn't a hit single, but it was released on Magical Mystery Tour, and it wasn't released as a single till 1996. Strange, right? Wow. The man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still. This thing still kills. Nobody I remember when I interviewed George Martin... He asked me, what's your favorite Beatles album? And I sheepishly had to tell him Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> and he says, he says to me, he says... Magical Mystery Tour, Mark. He says, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. Sergeant Peppers. Sergeant Peppers. Interview, <laughs> interview over. <laughs> the Who in 71. Bring it on. A Fool song. <laughs> the history of the Fool. Fool makes out pretty good, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> He's no fool, the Fool. 
The young kids don't know I'm looking at the Billboard Hot 100 right now. Not one full song. Yeah, they got to get with it. You know what? Party B. Fool me once. <laughs> Won't get, can't get fooled again. Steely Dan in 72, a fool hit. That's right. <laughs> Main ingredient. We can't leave out the main ingredient. Yes. 1972. This was a number three pop hit on the Billboard chart. All right. So good. So. Okay, so your heart broke. Yeah. <laughs> you sit around hoping. Dig this. Let's do the last one. Let's do the last one. I don't even want to say what it is, but it was 1996, number two on the Hot 100 Airplay. Wow. Love Fool. Yes. Love Fool. Yeah. Let's not forget 1978, Mr. T. I pity the fool. (laughs) So there you have it. Ten Fool Hits. And if, uh, if you're writing a song, make it a full song because uh, you've got greater odds of retiring in 20 minutes after it comes out. <laughs> and I got to tell you, the thing about Michael McDonald, too, is you mentioned he was in Steely Dan and probably the most well-pronounced, you know, on that Asia album. You listen to him on Peg. Peg His vocals just cut through. I mean, even like anything he just did a feature on, Christopher Cross, Ride Like the Wind, he comes right through. Great guy. Both of those guys are just marvelous artists and wonderful human beings, wonderful people to talk to. They were very generous with their time. Another fantastic read from Mark Myers at SiriusXM Volume. Check it out. Thank you, Mark. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Worse than hell.